Welcome to Manager Tools. Today's show, Small Company Systems, The Rule of 150, Part 1. In this series, we describe the Rule of 150, how it affects the growth of small companies and organizations, and how to address it. Here we go. Have we ever mentioned the rules of Rule 150 on our podcast? Sure, certainly we have, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure we've done it several times, right? I don't know. I, I, I think it's time that we, we talk about it, although we've, we've hesitated to do so in the past because this is one of those things that, well, at least at first, doesn't, doesn't appear to pass our test of being actionable, right? Yeah, but, but I think the reason we decided to do it this time was because on the working with a smaller firm recently, we were, we were talking about how to implement managerial behaviors to address it as opposed to just discussing it as a theory because they were going through through growth pains and, and we've done that before right we've made recommendations and you can't recommend just the idea you've got to recommend behaviors so um so it makes sense yeah. you, you'd think that'd be true but there are many <laughs> many firms out there well, yeah, seem yeah. to be just recommending ideas our, our recommendation is to think about these things well how nice <laughs> there you there you go okay so so what are we going to talk about what about the rule 150 really has grabbed your attention and uh, to the extent that you think we really need to share it with folks yeah well first of all th- this is certainly about small companies but but keep in mind we believe the rule of 150 applies to larger organizations too it's just that it's the smaller parts of large or large organizations, the divisions, the silos that exist, the groups, the regions, the plants, the factories, the warehouses, the distribution centers, the call centers, and so on versus, say, the entire firm, right? Just because you work at a 10,000 plus person firm doesn't mean you haven't or won't at some point in the future experience the effects of the rule of 150. The rule of 150 is some of a, somewhat of a fractal, wouldn't you say? <laughs> Yeah, that's a good way. Yeah, exactly. Um, that, that's probably over the head of a lot of our listeners, but yeah, I think uh, I think you're probably right. Um, there are we have four uh, points we're going to make here uh, today. Uh, the point number first point, what we're going to do is because small company folks are always asking for stuff from us, and we believe management is management, whether you're in a bank or, frankly, in the CIA or in a nonprofit organization or in a 10-person organization, managing other people is managing other people. That said, our first bullet is going to be a short course on small companies, on the growth, um, the frustration, the growth of manager and the growth of systems over time, and just sort of just covering this cast at a very high level quickly. Um, and then after that, our points two, three, and four are going to be, first of all, an explanation of the rule of 150, which is known as Dunbar's Law. And um, then we're going to talk about the growth of small companies, why entrepreneurs don't scale, and indications that you might have the rule in effect. And then our recommendation, our fourth point is what we call beat the rule, which is to train your managers so that um, they can create the relationships that take the place of the larger tribal relationships that begin to decay because of the rule of 150. Okay. So we're going to start off talking about small company short course here, uh, growth, frustration, manager growth systems. I mean, are small companies really any different than 
any other company? I mean, we have we have folks all all the time tell us that their situation is different, right? And particularly small companies. Is it really different? Do Do you agree no. with that? No. Uh, every situation is different, right? Every, every, you know, every family is different. Every town is different, but, but you can, you can abstract up a level to any town of 5,000 people and describe roughly the same, uh, um, systemic effects going on inside that town, for instance. Um, uh, when it comes to management, we generally disagree with the idea that, that, oh, our situation is fundamentally different. Um, now that's sad. We acknowledge small companies feel more pressed in terms of managerial issues than their larger company brethren, and they're, they're, they feel like they need to learn this stuff faster in order to get bigger. Um, so we thought we'd go over it um, quickly for those in small companies. And, and basically, you know, the, the first thing we know that's that's different in a way, growth is not different. If two companies are growing, well, then they're the same in that regard. But small companies grow faster than larger firms generally, or, or let's put it this way, their upper limit is probably higher in terms of growth than a bigger company uh, if you measure based on percentages. You know, if you're a small company and you grow 30% in a given year, that's probably good, but it's not stellar necessarily. No, oh, but I bet you Walmart, Walmart would love to grow thirty percent a year. Yeah, if they grew thirty percent per year, they'd have to swallow Germany or Denmark or something. I yeah, mean, right. You know, thirty percent of Walmart. You know, Walmart's what a four hundred billion dollar year company. Thirty percent of that is one hundred and twenty billion. They'd have to buy a Fortune one hundred, a Fortune twenty company, uh, in order to grow at thirty percent. Um, so, you know, if you're a million dollar firm and you add a million in revenue next year, that's 100% growth and you doubled. I mean, you, you, you know, that's, that's impressive. There's nothing wrong with that. And there are people, you know, thanks to the, you know, Inc. Magazine and so on, fastest growing 500 firms. If you're not growing at 5,000% per year, well, then you're not growing. We, we would argue about, we would argue about the intelligence of that, but nevertheless. Um, but look, if, if Walmart adds a million dollars a year, <laughs> it's a rounding error. And frankly, if they only grew a million dollars, their stock price would probably be pummeled because, you know, geez, what's happened to Walmart? They, they grew, but they only grew by a million dollars. Um, and look, look it's, it's simple. Growth is what most successful small firms are shooting for. But look, they, they talk about it. We want to grow. We want to grow. That's why. Look, if you're a small company and you've hired us, that's what they said. We want to grow, right? Let's not let's not put our systems in place and make them perfect and then stay stata- static because there are only two states of being. If you're a, an organism, and that's growth and death. Yeah, but you got you got ready to say but something. So is it, but is like is there a problem with growth? Yeah, sure. It leads to problems. I mean, if in fact growth didn't lead to problems. Um, then Walmart could grow at 30% per year, just like a small firm could. As any firm gets bigger, there are internal problems that take the management or leadership or sales team's focus off of customers, or for that matter, off of product development or on shipping for that matter. Um, and, and look, I, I, we, we say customers here because let's face it, all, all sustainable growth comes from customers, Right. You know, if the president or the, or the CEO, you know, if you're a small company or CEO, we would argue about that. But anyway, if the president has to spend two hours on a Tuesday fixing a problem inside the plant with distribution 
or adjudicating a conflict between sales and operations, you know, that is an example of, of something a CEO is doing in a, in a, in a growing firm that he or she might not had to have done when it's a two person firm, right? Before, the sales guy was the operations guy, but now there are two different people. They don't get along, and the CEO doesn't get to spend time with a potential customer um, that he would have a couple of years ago because he's handling the problem between his two minions, right? And, and so, look, no offense, the customer is not mad. The customer just goes elsewhere because if customer is not sold, they choose to take their business elsewhere. The company's still producing good products, right? They're still delivering them at a reasonable price. But it takes a concerted effort of several people uh, to do that because the, 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 the number of units is increasing or the complexity of the units is increasing. And so when the CEO is adjudicating, efforts aren't necessarily concerted and, and things tend to be messy and, 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 and less profitable, less revenue generating. Well, it seems to me that we'll, we'll just call this the bug rule because it's, it's similar to what happens with insects, right? I mean, insects only grow to a certain size because the exoskeleton can only manage that, that, that much weight, right? It gets to a point where that structure, that physical structure can't support the weight of the internal organs. Wow, you are just full of all sorts of interesting analogies and the bug rule of the exoskeleton? Dude. I am impressed. <laughs> I missed a cast or two, so I have to. I have to make yeah, it up. Oh, that's right. Just supposed to throw a bunch of yeah. stupid stuff out there to make it up to folks. Yeah, but look, it's it's easy. The the thing small companies want growth is what actually can keep them from growing. It is the byproduct of growth. It's it's growing pains, right? It, it hurts to grow. It's it, it's inefficient to grow. Uh, it, may, it may produce revenue, but often it produces revenue without profit, which is a good sign of inefficient growth, right? Right. And growth is good. And further, it creates problems. And the problem it tends to create is around internal versus external focus. There you go. Exoskeletons yeah. come up once again. <laughs> okay, good. Right, right. Okay, man. Exo boy. Uh, as, as the small company or a division or call center or a warehouse adds more people, there are more internal issues that drag the leadership's attention away from that external focus. Since most organizations' missions are externally focused, growth drags the company away from its mission, Right. And if you think about that for a while, that's actually really interesting. It's, it's, um, and, and of course, the answer is it's a behavioral problem. It's not a mission or a strategy problem. And entrepreneurs are often tireless about their vision. So when the firm goes from two to 15 employees, it's, it's harder, they would say, but they would also say, I'll stick to it. I'll work harder. I'll fight through. I'll become successful. This is just another phase in my growth as a person, as a leader, blah, 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 all of which is great. But when you go to 2 to 15, that's one thing. And most hard-driving entrepreneurs can fight through the kind of things that happen at 2 and 15 and even maybe 50 employees. But something different happens when the firm gets close to roughly, and we're going to say roughly a lot in this cast because it's not a hard and fast number, but something different happens when the firm gets close to roughly 150 employees or associates. The internal stuff in our experience, in our consulting with firms of all size, the internal stuff becomes notably harder. Presidents say, 
I could spend all my time on internal stuff and still not get through the pile of issues. What's going on around here? Why are every why is everything all of a sudden so inefficient? Right? And that actually is a quote from from an old old friend of mine. And what what's happened is at around roughly 150 people, the internal bonds and the shared mission and the shared vocabulary of the core original group of the firm um, have become attenuated across too many players, too many individuals. Internal problems tend to get big and bigger and overwhelming because in that 150 are people who essentially are not tied emotionally, behaviorally, personally to the mission, to the vision of the organization of the founder and so on. Um, The founder ends up getting frustrated and often, it doesn't always happen, you wouldn't say categorically, quote, a wall has been hit, unquote, but, but you could make a case that um, when revenue is growing at 50% a year and then suddenly it's at 10 and then suddenly it's at zero, well, you know, that's kind of a wall to some people, right? Um, but but even, if it, even if it doesn't go to zero, if, it, if growth slows noticeably, and this wall is sort of hit, but nobody seems to know why. They, you know, why is revenue stagnating? We have the same products. Every customer says they love our products. They don't require us to discount. We only have 1% market share. There's totally lots of undiscovered country out there. Why, you know, why are we flat two quarters in a row? And believe it or not, the solution to this problem is to develop your managers. Once your firm or location or division gets to roughly 150 people, the ties, and that's because of the rule of 150, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But if you're a small company and you don't want to know the theory, once your firm or location gets to roughly 150 people, for some companies, it's as short as soon as 100. For some companies, you can stretch all the way to 200 and the mission is still connective tissue enough that you can actually get away with it. Um, but somewhere in there, the ties that bind you all together, that gives you the energy, that makes you stay later, that makes you solve that extra problem, those ties that bind start to fray. And the way you have to address it is to educate your managers on the tension between your growth and the rule of 150 and encourage them to create a new, professionally focused, smaller group, which as the larger total firm continues to grow, the smaller firm will grow as well. In other words, you start creating a sales culture within the original corporate culture. And what happens is, because 150 is too many for people to connect to emotionally, they begin to reconnect with the smaller group. And we recommend you then combine this with more regular and disparate communications about the entire organization. Yeah, well, if it starts to fray around the edges as you described it, can't executives of this medium-sized firm now, can't they put more effort into it? You know, keggers, parties, keggers, get folks, people to get together. (laughs) Intergalactic kegger. Um, Yeah. Well, you can. And and, and look, um, growth between 25 and 50 and 100 and 125 and 200 feels roughly the same in terms of symptoms, the struggles you get, and the little the little dips in terms of revenue and profitability. And so entrepreneurs just say, hey, I'm off my game, need to reinvest, to, you know, uh, he tells his wife, I'll be busy at the office for the next three months, but then we'll break through. So you, you, you could say that. 
we would say that if you're going from 10 to 30 or 30 to 75 or 75 to 100. But after that, we have found, no, that's not the case. That you have to give up the idea that you can reconnect everyone back to the mission, back to the font of, of energy for when the chips are down and you need to pull an all-nighter. It's really hard to connect people back to it when you hit around 150. Again, different levels for different companies. Some as early as 100, some as late as maybe even 200. If you don't resist the urge to engage in Herculean efforts to reconnect everybody all the time, you're going to be wasting your time. It's particularly difficult if you're not co-located geographically. In today's world, 150 people in the same place is highly unlikely. But I mean, it's not, it's not high. I guess it's unlikely. It's much more likely you'll have people spread apart. Now, now look, there's nothing wrong, to your point about keggers, there's nothing wrong with efforts at connecting people and, and burnishing the mystery, the, the, the mission and the history of, of the firm, right? Just don't expect your entire company or your entire division or your location to get it the way the core group or the founder or the original team does. They're not going to. They can't. It's not their fault that they don't. But, you know, keg parties are fine. Every Friday having a keg party is fine because that's what you guys used to do when you all had one light beer at, you know, at 7 o'clock on Friday before everybody went home and slept, before they came back in and worked again Saturday morning. But, you know, you can have Mansef as a team. When you, when you have 150 employees, actually, with Mansef, you don't even actually have to make extra. Yeah, no problem. Um, it'll, it'll feed 150. So you can do that stuff. You simply ought not to be believing that if you engage in those kinds of cultural connectivity efforts, that that is going to solve the problem because it doesn't. Um, what we recommend is you train the managers in your organization to create strong relationships with their teams. That's easy. It's one-on-ones. It's feedback. It's coaching. It's delegation. It's staff meetings and so on. And basically what you're doing is you're allowing a smaller and different tribal group within your larger organization to begin to form. You rely on your managers to then connect that group back to the whole rather than constantly reaching around your managers to remind everybody how great the company was when it started. In fact, one of the things that founders do is tell stories about what it was like in the beginning. And when there's only three people in the company, there's some romance often to a company. When there's 150 people, um, you better have a lot of stories and they better run into the people that are in those stories every single day if you think those stories are going to connect the 150th hire of your firm or the 150th employee of your firm back to the rationale that started the company and the joy and the and the the crushing defeats and the big successes that make us emotionally connected to the places where we work. So we recommended a small company that when you get to that 150 mark, you you help your managers have the skills to grow their own teams and communicate the firm's needs to their teams. Basically, we're recommending you train your managers on how to manage. Now, obviously, we're manager tools. It's easy for us to say that. But but we don't talk about every possible problem in your firm because not every possible problem can be solved by, by good management. But the growth problem has to be solved by management. We recommend, again, you train your managers on how, how to manage. They probably did something specific before. They did sales or manufacturing or design or coding or warehousing or shipping or admin or finance or whatever. But now they have some people working for them. Those folks aren't fully connected, thanks to the rule of 150, to the whole of the organization. And they've probably never had, these people who are managing them have probably never had to been a manager before. 
don't assume they'll be good at it. Folks, assume they'll be miserably bad at it. You know, remember the tragedy of the welder, of the guy who gets promoted because he's the best welder, and then he becomes a manager, and he gets fired because he's not a good manager and never wanted to be and thinks his job is just to weld. And you have to ask the number of people in your organization of when it gets to roughly 150 to change their mentality from being a salesperson or an operations person, being an operator, to being a manager. And look, this is one of those inflection points. Some people will make it. Some people won't. And if you're smart and you've been communicating well with people, some of the salespeople who become managers will step back into being salespeople and will be thrilled that if they're one of the original folks, maybe they've got some stock options and having a good manager in place will make them much richer um, and much more likely to be happy than being in a manager role, slowing down the growth of the company while having some power that they may not really be any good at with anyway. Yeah, and if you do really well, then you get the additional benefit, right? You get bigger, and then you get to have systems like HR and accounting <laughs> and all sorts of stuff like that. So, Yeah, look, you start thinking about those kind of systems when you hit 100, 150 folks. You start demanding that your managers manage at around 100 people rather than just saying to people, well, you're in charge of operations, but we know it's just a team down there. That's one of those words that I don't really like because it implies something that's not true. Um, but ask people, if there are seven people in sales, say, look, you're the sales manager now. And it's not just a sales force, all of whom report to the president or the CEO or the founder. Now there's a sales manager, you report to, the, they report to you and you're the manager and you have to manage. You don't, you don't get to be a salesperson and then manage in your spare time and do a, pa- a bad job at it, even while you get big commissions. Right. And likely if the company is going to grow past that point, the best salesperson who happens to be the first among equals and proves himself or herself unable to actually manage, right, now gets moved out of the way yeah. to get somebody who can actually manage the team. And if they don't do that, then they just essentially cap their growth at that point, right? Yeah, they cap their growth, yeah. So so we remember what we say, start demanding that your managers manage at 100. And when we say manage, we mean one-on-ones, feedback, coaching, delegation. We mean regular discussions about how the people are doing and how they can get better. Move out of management those who aren't any good. And even if they've been indispensable, even if they've been with you since the beginning, if they're not any good, ask them to step aside. Give them, you know, if they stay, um, you know, what was it? Somebody told me former indispensability combined with present lack of performance gets the buggy whip award, right? I mean, before cars came along, buggy whips were indispensable. And then cars came along and they were absolutely non-performing relative to what cars could do. So, you know, a person who's a great salesperson who then becomes a manager but can't do management is valuable until they're not valuable anymore. Now, look, we're not suggesting get rid of them. We are suggesting get the heck out of, get the get them the heck out of a management role. Yeah. And you know what that what that means is that's hard. Um, and sometimes this is why entrepreneurs don't scale because they don't want to tell their friends, "Hey, look, the company comes first. That's why I've been sweating. That's why I have gray hairs. That's why I've lost most of my hair." We know it's hard to do that, and we're not suggesting it's not hard. Um, and, and look, we'll make it easy on you. You don't have to do this if you just want to stay where you are and stop growing. Building a company to 150 employees is an accomplishment few people on our planet will ever realize. But don't expect to jump to your next S-curve of growth just because you want to keep doing what got you this far. I mean, the whole point of organic growth is what got you here won't get you there. What is it Einstein said today? 
you know, today's problem, today's thinking won't solve today's problems. We need tomorrow's thinking. So I, our point is when you get to roughly 150 folks, the rules start changing. The way to address it is by asking people in your organization to step up and become managers, and they start creating their own cultures within each little pocket of the company. And if that sounds like a death knell for the for the joy of the company startup, in a way, it's true. And you can tell all the the Bill and Dave stories for those of you at Hewlett Packard, um, and that's great. And yet, there I suspect there are very few people who say would say today Hewlett Packard is run today just like Bill and Dave ran it. They just, it's just not. Right. So let's talk about the rule of 150. What is so special about 150, plus or minus, if you will? What, what, what happens there? This, this is really fun. Okay, so the rule of 150 is also called Dunbar's Law. It was, it was discovered or postulated by a guy named Dunbar. And the rule of 150 states that most human beings can keep roughly, I say again, roughly, 150 strong connections to other people in their heads. Okay. That means that growing in an organization past 150 folks strains the emotional and personal connections that people feel to their fellow associates and likely to the larger mission of the firm. And when that happens, because they feel strained, conflict occurs. And basically what, we, what this cast is about is that knowing that the rule of 150 exists helps us manage through that growth phase of going from 100 to 200 employees. Because it's going to happen to your firm. It's a well-discussed, if you will, law of nature. It's not perfectly precise, but you're going to come up upon it at some point, and you might as well know about it so you can address it and know why it's happening when it's happening to you. Okay, let's do this. A little bit of background, okay? We admit this is not settled science. We're not talking about Newton's law here, okay? If it was Newton's law, you not only know about it, you would have been taught about it, you'd been prepared to see it happen, just like watching an apple fall to the ground, right? But basically, the short version is that Dunbar did some research about primate tribal groups and discovered that there was roughly a linear correlation between the size of a given primate subgroup's neocortex, or their forebrain, and the median size of its tribal group. In other words, if you graphed various primates' size of their forebrain on the axis, x-axis of a graph, and then plotted the size of their biggest historically successful tribal group that that primate group lived in, the graph you get seems to have a pretty straight-line relationship. And so that suggests a straight line in a graph like that suggests um, you know, maybe not causality, but but uh, at least correlation between the two things. And Dunbar postulated that this was because the neocortex was responsible for sight and hearing, and primates are wired for recognition of others' facial features. Uh, and so the cortex's size plays to, played a role in how big our tribal groups could be based on our ability to handle the memory and association necessary to connect us to these other folks. And as it turns out, the average human forebrain size plotted on the x-axis intersects the graph of other primates' data at about 150 humans. <laughs> Hence the rule of 150. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which means the average human can keep about 150 other humans in his or her head as part of their tribal group. Um, that connection, that the, the, the forebrain's ability to store that in, in, in memory, facilitates communication and trust. 
It increases bonding, and it likely increases efficiency and effectiveness of various tribal actions. Communication within that 150 is easier and less filled with friction and therefore more likely to be effective. Now, if you take the rule of 150 further, Dunbar says, if you extrapolate, the growth of a tribal group past 150 tends to stretch the average member's facilities to associate with others in the group. And because we humans are inherently social creatures, even, even the IT people in the world, right? <laughs> when, when we lack the ability to associate with a larger group, here's a key. We create a group, which is obviously usually smaller than the larger group, with which we can associate closely because, again, we've lost connection with a larger group. That's right. That's why I, me and my clique, we get together. Yeah, look, this is this literally when when company one of the things we're going to suggest is that you, you'll note when you see clicks starting to form in your organization, that's a sign that the rule of 150 is happening in some fashion in your organization. And basically, historically, there are several tribal histories in the world, in the world of mankind, where the tribe got to about 150 and it either died because it had a charismatic founder or whatever, and he or she tried to keep them all together, or it split into two smaller groups of 150 or two groups of 75 that had strong leaders there that then were able to grow into two equal groups of 150 before they split up and so on. And so when you get to 150, people can't connect. They feel like they're too far away from the original group. You know, their employee number is not a single digit you know, they don't have a special parking place. And so they disassociate from the, the core group. And, and once they disassociate from the core group, they say, what's another group I can associate with? And maybe it's the people in the loading dock. Maybe it's the people in the flat plant. Maybe it's the people in the bottling line. It could be almost anything. And our recommendation is when that clickishness starts to form, when you, the, the founder says, I'm, I'm frustrated. People are now saying they're in sales as opposed to with our company XYZ. That's the time to start asking your managers to step up. And the managers become the connective tissue for all of the clicks, pardon the phrase, and the smaller tribes that connect the smaller tribes to the larger one and keeps the entire social operating system of the company healthy. Yeah. Now, is this the same thing as Dunbar's number? Because I've heard that. Yeah, that's, yeah. It is. Okay. Yeah. The, look, Malcolm Gladwell, The Tipping Point, right? In Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, he, he, a very popular nonfiction book. I, I, if we don't recommend, if we haven't recommended it up until now, I recommend it. I really like it. Um, Gladwell sometimes goes further than we want him to, but he's a really smart guy. He's a very, very good writer. And the book has certainly gained credibility in the business world, particularly in the marketing arena. He basically popularized Dunbar's number when he was discussing the communication of ideas among people and among social groups. And uh, up until Gladwell, it was generally known as Dunbar's number, and Gladwell called it the rule of 150. Um, but you can call it whatever you want. We've just seen it happen too many times to ignore it. And you know what? A hundred years from now, somebody could say, well, we proved the number is really not right. And I'd say, yeah, okay, maybe. I love the fact that we'll learn more about the world around us and, and, and refine some of our ideas. Um, you know, that's why medicine continues to grow because we're willing to challenge the way we do things. And yet still, what I know is that when companies go from 100 to 200 people, somewhere in there, depending upon the founder, the type of the company, who the founder has hired and so on, companies go through particularly difficult 
growth uh, uh, challenges. Uh, when they've been growing 30% per year steadily for years and years and years, suddenly they go to zero. Or when they've been growing 200%, suddenly they go to 40% and they wonder what happened. And it makes sense to me when I've talked to people at all levels of those organizations that they just feel dissociated and disconnected. Yeah. So there, there are some detractors of this particular theory. Oh, sure. Yeah. Look, look, I mean, you know, okay, look, it's not settled science. It's a, it's a postulate, right? Um, it's not Newton's first law. It's not Einstein's theory of relativity. So there are arguments, right? There are experiments that suggest a better number might even be as high as 300. That's not my experience, but, but you know, maybe. And others that suggest the quasi-biological upper limit on harmonious tribal growth could be as low as 100. For people like me, that's that's rings closer to the truth than... Yeah, uh, yeah, sure. But look, because the underlying discussion is about human behavior, it's unlikely that any pure and pre- precise datum will ever be proven as the number, or even that the concept will, will be scientifically blessed as, as true, right? So we're not trying to send the message that the rule of 150 is inviolate. All groups behave differently, and there are too many factors involved to, to draw, you know, proof, if you will. Some companies or locations within companies will feel the, feel the effects of tribal distancing, if you want to call it that, at 100 people. Some companies will grow to 200, or as we said, even 300. But at some point, uh, some of the growth is going to slow, assuming growth is what you want because of lack of connectivity to the original group. And look, I've seen many, many, many instances where the evidence of the rule is overwhelming. Um, even though there's no incontrovertible proof, and look, let's face it, what other management recommendations have widely agreed to incontrovertible, incontrovertible proof, right? It just not, doesn't really happen because it's management. We believe that the forces at work with the Rule of 150 totally exist and play a role in the growth of human commercial systems. We believe that when stresses begin to be felt and frustration sets in during a growth phase in a company, solving each instance of conflict, particularly with founder intervention, may not only not be the strategic approach to future growth, it may be solving the symptoms and not the cause. Knowing this influence exists can help a small organization, a small company, a small plant, and its managers better prepare and execute during that growth as you as you bump along through that number of, of roughly 150 people. Thanks, everyone. That's it. We'll conclude this series next week. In the meantime, have a great one. So long. <laughs>